Hello, I'm Kristen Marchand, and welcome to a very special episode of the Apiango Line. Even though we're smack dab in the middle of this dastardly COVID-19 pandemic, nobody at the Apiango Readers Theatre thought that reason enough to cancel a show we've been working on for months. But before we get to that show of shows, we've got a couple of people with something important to say. The first is Joanne Olson, president of the Station Keepers, that hearty group of 100-plus volunteers who have spent the last year bringing some much-needed life back into the old Barry's Bay train station. Over to you, Joanne. Thank you, Kristen, and welcome to everyone listening to this special Opiango Line Victoria Day podcast. Earlier this year, we thought, like everyone else, I suppose, that we'd be celebrating our triumphal first year as station keepers. At our first annual general meeting this past January, we thought we'd be having another rousing summer at the old Barry's Bay Railway Station, as we did last year. But, like all the best laid plans of mice and men, that was not to be thanks to the coronavirus pandemic. Still, I can't help but look at that old train station as I do almost every day and draw from it a deep sense of inspiration, purpose, and hope. It might surprise you to know that I also can't help but smile every time I pass that old station, especially during these strange, difficult, seemingly despairing times. Why? Well, all one has to do is to look at the majesty of that train station's simple lines vibrant colors, its humble size, its quiet beauty, all one has to do is know a bit of its history. Just think about what that old waiting room has seen in its 125 years of watching passengers come and go, boarding or getting off trains. That place survived all manner of public health crises, diphtheria, cholera, yellow fever, tuberculosis, polio, the measles, It saw all of those pandemics arrive like a tsunami and try to decimate the lives and hopes of local people. It also saw brave young men and caring women board a train here in Barry's Bay and leave for the Boer War, the Great War, the Second World War, the Korean War, and any number of peacekeeping missions that our local Legion veterans still quietly talk about today. In fact, it's a little-known story, but when it was hardly four months old, that little old Barry's Bay train station was involved in a vicious court battle that threatened to see every board and nail of its being dismantled and carted away. Yet, it somehow survived, and once again thrived, opening its doors as though nothing untoward had ever happened. Talk about chutzpah. There's something in that little station that just won't quit that just won't stay shuttered or turn its back on its local people, and neither should we. As station keepers, we formed ourselves into a non-profit corporation this past year, and we accomplished much. We took that old, mostly shuttered station and spruced it up with a refurbished railway museum, a salute to our teachers and town builders, and even an exhibit to one of our favorite group of seven painters, A.J. Casson, who used to paint nearby when the station was pretty much still a yappy little pup. In the past year, we signed up over 100 volunteers to join our little group, all now sporting manual membership cards. We launched a whole raft of special events and cultural performances, 
and not in the least our July 1st celebrations, as well as a very special 125th anniversary that commemorated its original opening as an OA and PS railway station back on October 1st, 1894. We launched a much-loved film club, a company of happy adventurers. We launched the Station Keeper Singers, and we launched this very podcast, The Opiongo Line that every couple of weeks reminds us of not just who we were, but who we are and who we know we've got the gumption to become. Indeed, up until March, it had not been a very quiet year at the old station, as we were steadfastly working through our Month of Sundays program, introducing new shows that highlighted our local culture and heritage. And though that station may now sit idle for some months to come, or God forbid, perhaps until this time next year, Still, it's a sure bet that the station keepers are not about to let a little COVID-19 keep us from dreaming and building our future in and around that wonderful little train station, the only real true icon of Barry's Bay's future. We're all too committed to its history and its dreams to let its inspiring spirit remain closed off from us for long. No, COVID-19 won't last forever. And it won't defeat the station keepers, and it certainly won't keep that wonderful old Barry's Bay train station from being a beacon for all the good people who live and work in this township. We and it are forces to be reckoned with, even during a pandemic. And if the truth be known, and it must, we are both here to stay in Barry's Bay. So on this very special Victoria Day, as we gather along the World Wide Web for the very first time to celebrate all that's good, and great about our local Balmoral connection, and especially all that the 19th century has given to Barry's Bay, just remember that we're not about slip slide or melt away. In fact, we're deep into planning how we can reclaim those month of Sundays. And we do have more than a few surprises for you this coming summer. Yes, it's true, everybody knows, the Renfrew Fair and the CNE have both been shuttered for this year. So too, the Will No Chicken Supper, and most other social events that may attract half a dozen people or more in one place. But stay tuned. The station keepers have some surefire, innovative ways to preserve and promote our local culture and heritage, come hell or high water, or even COVID-19. With that said, it's time to hand it back over to Kristen. But before I do, to all of our station keeper members, as well as to anyone who has ever seen that inspiring old train station in Barry's Bay, wherever you are in the world right now, have a very special Victoria Day. Thank you, Joanne. Next up is a lady who needs no introduction, our very own mayor of the Madawaska Valley Township, Kim Love. The Victoria Day long weekend is usually an opportunity to discover our community, celebrate the end of winter, prepare for summer, and gather with family and friends at the Bay Day event. Many of our summer residents and cottagers will be returning for the season to enjoy nature and the nicer weather. All our residents, both seasonal and year-round, are valued members of this community. Together, we share a long-standing tradition of supporting one another, contributing towards the local economy, creating a vibrant social fabric, and an indomitable community spirit in the Madawaska Valley. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed our lives in ways that none of us could have imagined. 
As the province begins to roll out their recovery plan and ease restrictions, residents, businesses, our community and the municipality are all working to adapt to these changes and adjust to the new normal. We must continue to follow the guidelines of public health and comply with provincial orders. To stop the spread of COVID-19, we all need to maintain physical distancing, wash our hands regularly, avoid gatherings, and stay in our individual household groups. Seasonal residents will be traveling to Madawaska Valley from cities and towns across Ontario, some of which have much higher levels of community spread. The Federation of Ontario Cottagers Associations is recommending that seasonal residents purchase the groceries and supplies they need, travel directly to their cottage, and self-isolate for 14 days. In the days ahead, the health and well-being of this community is going to depend on the actions of each and every one of us. Let's continue to act responsibly to protect our health care and essential workers, seniors, and those most vulnerable to this virus. The Township of Madawaska Valley has made some changes so we can continue to serve our community during the pandemic. The municipal office is closed, but staff are available by phone or email. Council meetings are being held electronically and can be watched on YouTube. Regular waste site and transfer station hours have been maintained with extra precautions in place to keep staff and residents safe, but we ask that garbage bag tags be purchased beforehand from local retailers. Free brush disposal is available at the Barclake Landfill and Yard 2 in Cumbermere. Municipal recreation centres, playgrounds and beaches are still closed, and events have been cancelled or deferred for the time being. The Township of Madawaska Valley will continue to monitor the situation and provide updates as they become available. Reopening and recovery will not happen overnight. We all need to adjust to the new normal, plan carefully, and implement the changes needed to stay healthy and stay safe. The Victoria Day weekend may be here, but this is not summer as usual. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Now it's on with that very special Apionga Readers Theatre Victoria Day show. Many of you know what this holiday weekend is all about. We shake off the old snow of the past winter. We tidy up our lawns, busy ourselves planting a few flowers, or even a garden. And maybe we put the dock back in the water, or get that old fly fishing rod primed for the trout that got away last summer. Or maybe it's time to just sit out on the back deck and enjoy thinking about working on our summer tan. Whatever it means, there is little difficulty enjoying this long weekend, but it's sometimes a bit of a mystery to get Canadians to explain why exactly we celebrate Victoria Day, or as it is called in some parts of this country, the May 2-4. Well, we're here to change all that. You see, Canada is the only country in the entire world to celebrate Queen Victoria with an official statutory holiday. And we've been doing it in the last half of May since 1845, which may come as a real surprise given that merry old England 
herself never celebrates Victoria Day, even though Queen Victoria was born there and reigned as a British monarch for nearly 64 years. Come to think of it, no other Commonwealth country, those nations that were once part of the British Empire and upon which the sun never set, celebrates Queen Victoria's birthday. So, why in tarnation is there such a passion for Queen Victoria in Canada? The easy answer might be that Canadians like to party, and so will use any old excuse for a holiday in the latter half of May. But the truth is, Queen Victoria was a child of the 19th century, and so too was Canada. We both came of age during that time, and somehow Queen Victoria personifies our history, if not our early growth as an independent nation. Not so much because she was born with royal blood, rather because she lived most of her life with few expectations, and yet she met each day in a very turbulent world head on. Indeed, her entire life was full of astounding scientific, industrial, political, military, and cultural upheaval, still known today as the Victorian Age. Born Princess Alexandrina Victoria of Kent, she came into the world on May 24, 1819, at Kensington Palace, London. She was the daughter of Prince Edward, Duke of Kent, who himself was the fourth son of King George III. Curiously, Prince Edward was also the first royal to ever visit Canada. In fact, he lived here for extended periods of time. Yet, at the time of Victoria's birth, few would ever have imagined that his daughter would become Queen of the British Empire. Still, as royal luck would have it, on June 20, 1837, it was that very same Princess Alexandrina Victoria who inherited the crown of England after King William IV passed away on that day. Little over a year later, the 18-year-old Alexandrina Victoria officially dropped forever the use of her first name and underwent her formal coronation as Queen Victoria. Here is an eyewitness account of that day, as observed by Charles Greville. The coronation, which, thank God, is over, went off very well. The day was fine without heat or rain, the innumerable multitude which thronged the streets orderly and satisfied. The appearance of the abbey was beautiful, particularly the benches of the peeresses who were blazing with diamonds. The entry of Salt, one of Napoleon's old marshals, was noteworthy. He was saluted with a murmur of curiosity and applause as he passed through the nave, and nearly the same as he advanced along the choir. His appearance is that of a veteran warrior, and he walked alone with his numerous suite following at a respectful distance, preceded by heralds and ushers, who received him with marked attention, more certainly than any of the other ambassadors. The queen looked very diminutive, and the effect of the procession itself was spoilt by being too crowded. There was not enough interval between the queen and the lords and the others going before her. The Bishop of London, Bloomfield, preached a very good sermon. The different actors in the ceremonial were very imperfect in their parts and had neglected to rehearse them. Lord John Thin, who officiated for the Dean of Westminster, told me that nobody knew what was to be done except the Archbishop himself who had rehearsed, Lord Willoughby, who was experienced in these matters, and the Duke of Wellington. And consequently, there was a continual difficulty and embarrassment, and the Queen never knew what she was to do next. 
They made her leave her chair and enter into St. Edward's Chapel before the prayers were concluded, much to the discomfiture of the archbishop. She said to John Thin, Pray, tell me, what am I to do, for they don't know? And at the end, when the orb was put into her hand, she said to him, What am I to do with it? Your majesty is to carry it, if you please, in your hand. Am I, she said, it's very heavy. The ruby ring was made for her little finger instead of her fourth, on which the rubric prescribes that it should be put. When the archbishop was to put it on, she extended the former, but he said it must be the latter. She said it was too small and she could not get it on. He said it was right to put it there, and as he insisted, she yielded, but at first to take off her other rings, and then this was forced on, but it hurt her very much, and as soon as the ceremony was over, she was obliged to bathe her finger in iced water in order to get it off. Not exactly how Hollywood might have done it up, but there's a certain giddy humor in knowing that for all the royal brains that coronation came off a bit like some of those rough-and-tumble social affairs we've all been party to in Canada. Who hasn't seen a bride who can't quite get the ring to fit her intended finger? Indeed, there's something truly Canadian in the voice of Queen Victoria when she herself writes about her swirly 19th century life. Take, for instance, her diary entry for February 10th, 1840, the day she married the love of her life, Prince Albert, her cousin. Got up at quarter to nine. Well, and having slept well, and breakfast at half past nine. Mama came up before and brought me a nosegay of orange flowers. My dearest, kindest Leeson gave me a dear little ring. Wrote my journal and to Lord M. Had my hair dressed and the wreath of orange flowers put in. Saw Albert for the last time alone as my bridegroom. Dressed. Saw Uncle and Ernest, whom dearest Albert brought up. At half past twelve, I set off. Dearest Albert, having gone before. I wore a white satin gown with a very deep flounce of Honiton lace, imitation of old. I wore my Turkish diamond necklace and earrings and Albert's beautiful sapphire brooch. Mama and the Duchess of Sutherland went in the carriage with me. I never saw such crowds as people as they were in the park, and they cheered most enthusiastically. When I arrived at St. James, I went into the dressing room where my twelve young train bearers were, dressed all in white with white roses, which had a beautiful effect. Here, I waited a little till dearest Albert's procession had moved into the chapel. I then went with my train bearers and ladies into the throne room where the procession formed, Lord Melbourne in his fine new dress coat, bearing the sword of state, and Lord Uxbridge and Lord Belfast on either side of them walked immediately before me. Queen Anne's room was full of people ranged on seats one higher than the other, as also in the guard room, and by the staircase, all very friendly. The procession looked beautiful going downstairs. Part of the color court was also covered in and full of people who were very civil. The flourish of trumpets ceased as I entered the chapel, and the organ began to play, 
which had a beautiful effect. At the altar, to my right stood Albert. Mama was on my left, as also the Dukes of Sussex and Cambridge, and Aunt Augusta, and on Albert's right was a Queen Dowager. Then Uncle Ernest, the Duchess of Cambridge, and Little Mary, George, Augusta, and Princess Sophia Matilda. Lord Melbourne stood closest to me with the sword of state. The ceremony was very imposing and fine and simple, and I think ought to make an everlasting impression on everyone who promises at the altar to keep what he or she promises. Dearest Albert repeated everything very distinctly. I felt so happy when the ring was put on and by Albert. As soon as the service was over, the procession returned as it came, with the exception that my beloved Albert led me out. The applause was very great in the color court as we came through. Lord Melbourne, good man, was very much affected during the ceremony and at the applause. We all returned to the throne room where the signing of the register took place. It was first signed by the Archbishop, then by Albert and me, and all the royal family, and by the Lord Chancellor, the Lord President, the Lord Privy Seal, the Duke of Norfolk as Earl Marshal, the Archbishop of York, and Lord Melbourne. We then went into the closet and the royal family waited with me there till the ladies had got into their carriages. I gave all the train bearers as a brooch a small eagle of turquoise. I then returned to Buckingham Palace alone with Albert. They cheered us really most warmly and heartily. The crowd was immense and the hall at Buckingham Palace was full of people. They cheered us again and again. The great drawing room and throne room were full of people of rank and numbers of children were there. Lord Melbourne and Lord Clarendon, who had arrived, stood at the door of the throne room when we came in. I went and sat on the sofa in my dressing room with Albert, and we talked together there for ten minutes. Then we went downstairs where all the company was assembled and went into the dining room, dearest Albert leading me in, and my train being borne by three pages, Cowell, Little Wemyss, and dear Little Bing. I sat between dearest Albert and the Duke of Sussex. My health and dearest Albert's were drunk. The Duke was very kind and civil. Albert and I drank a glass of wine with Lord Melbourne, who seemed much affected by the whole. I talked to all after the breakfast, and to Lord Melbourne, whose fine coat I praised. Little Mary behaved so well, both at the marriage and the breakfast. I went upstairs and undressed and put on a white silk gown trimmed with swan's down and a bonnet with orange flowers. Albert went downstairs and undressed. At twenty minutes to four, Lord Melbourne came to me and stayed with me till ten minutes to four. I shook hands with him and he kissed my hand, talked of how well everything went off. Nothing could have gone off better, he said, and of the people being in good humor and having also received him well, of my receiving the addresses from the House of Lords and Commons, of his coming down to Windsor in time for dinner. 
I begged him not to go to the party. He was a little tired. I would let him know when we arrived. I pressed his hand once more and he said, God bless you, ma'am, most kindly and with such a kind look. Dearest Albert came up and fetched me downstairs where we took leave of Mama and drove off at near four. I and Albert alone. Despite being the first to launch that lasting Victorian fashion statement that a bride must wear white, Queen Victoria sounds very much like somebody from rural Canada. Not one to back away from any challenge and certainly someone who enjoyed hunting. Here's another excerpt from her diary as she and Albert in 1852 go stag hunting on her Balmoral estate. It was her cherished Scottish Highland home away from home and where she spent a total of seven years during her nearly 64-year reign. It's also the inspiration for our very own 19th century Balmoral Hotel, often pronounced Balmoral in these parts, a place that's seen its own share of successful hunters over the last 125 years. After luncheon, Albert decided to walk through the wood for the last time to have a last chance, and allowed Vicky, the royal princess, and me to go with him. At half past three o'clock, we started, out at Grant's and walked up part of Carrop, intending to go along the upper path when a stag was heard to roar, and we all turned into the wood. We crept along and got into the middle path. Albert soon left us to go lower, and we sat down to wait for him. Presently, we heard a shot, then complete silence, and after another pause of some little time, three more shots. This was again succeeded by complete silence. We sent someone to look, who shortly after returned, saying the stag has been twice hit, and they were after him. MacDonald next went, and in about five minutes we heard Solomon giving tongue and knew he had the stag at bay. We listened a little while and then began moving down hoping to arrive in time. But the barking ceased and Albert had already killed the stag. And on the road he lay, a little way beyond in Vindergelder, the beauty that we had admired yesterday evening. He was a magnificent animal, and I sat down and scratched a little sketch of him on a bit of paper that MacDonald had in his pocket, which I put on a stone, while Albert and Vicky, with the others, built a little cairn to mark the spot. We heard, after I had finished my little scrawl, and the carriage had joined us, that another stag had been seen near the road and we had not gone so far as the irons before we saw one below the road looking so handsome. Albert jumped out and fired. The animal fell, but rose again and went on a little way, and Albert followed. Very shortly after, however, we heard a cry and ran down and found Grant and Donald Stewart pulling up a stag with a very pretty head. Albert had gone on, Grant went on after him, and I and Vicky remained with Donald Stewart, the stag, and the dogs. 
I sat down to sketch, and poor Vicky, unfortunately, seated herself on the wasp's nest and was much stung. Donald Stewart rescued her, for I could not, being myself, too much alarmed. Albert joined us in twenty minutes, unaware of having killed the stag. What a delightful day! Queen Victoria's happiness, however, was not to last. In 1861, her beloved Prince Albert succumbed to typhoid fever. He died just before Christmas, leaving Victoria a 42-year-old widow with nine children. Here is an extract from one of the letters she wrote to her favorite uncle shortly after the funeral. My own dearest Uncle Leopold, King of the Belgians, I am now the utterly broken-hearted and crushed widow of 42. My life is a happy one, is ended. The world is gone for me. If I must live on, and I will do nothing to make me worse than I am, it is henceforth for our poor fatherless children, for my unhappy country, which has lost all in losing him, and in only doing what I know and feel he would wish, for he is near me, his spirit will guide and inspire me. But, oh, to be cut off in the prime of life, to see our pure, happy, quiet, domestic life, which alone enabled me to bear my much-disliked position, cut off at forty-two, when I had hoped with such instinctive certainty that God would never part us and would let us grow old together. Though he always talked of the shortness of life, it is too awful too cruel. And yet, it must be for his good, his happiness. His purity was too great, his aspiration too high for this poor, miserable world. His great soul is now only enjoying that for which it was worthy. And I will not envy him, only pray that mine may be perfected by it, and for to be with him eternally, for which blessed moment I earnestly long. Dearest, dearest uncle, how kind of you to come. It will be an unspeakable comfort, and you can do much to tell people to do what they ought to do. As for my own good personal servants, poor Phipps in particular, nothing can be more devoted, heartbroken as they are, and anxious only to live, as he wished. Ever your devoted, wretched child, Victoria R. The young queen found solace in her duties and occasionally in the books she often loved to read. One of her favorite authors was Alfred Lord Tennyson, undoubtedly the premier English poet of the Victorian age. It was Tennyson who wrote the following poem for Victoria's Golden Jubilee in 1887. Fifty times the rose has flowered and faded, fifty times the golden harvest fallen, since our queen assumed the globe, the scepter. She, beloved for her kindliness, rare and fabled in history, queen and empress of India, crowned so long with a diadem, never worn by a worthier, now with prosperous auguries, comes at last to the bounteous, crowning year of her jubilee. Nothing of the lawless, of the despot, nothing of the vulgar or vainglorious, 
all is gracious, gentle, great, and queenly. You then, joyfully, all of you, set the mountain aflame tonight. Shoot your stars into the firmament. Deck your houses, illuminate all your towns for a festival. And each let a multitude loyal each to the heart of it, one full voice of allegiance. Hail the fair ceremonial of this year of her jubilee. Queen as true to womanhood as queenhood, glorying in the glories of her people, sorrowing in the sorrows of the lowest. You, that wanton of affluence, spare not to be bountiful. Call your poor to regale with you, all the lonely, the destitute. Make their neighborhood healthfuller. Give your gold to the hospital. Let the weary be comforted. Let the needy be banqueted. Let the maimed in their heart rejoice at this glad ceremonial and this year of her jubilee. Henry's fifty years are all in shadow, gray with distance, Edward's fifty summers. Even her grandsires, fifty have forgotten. You, the patriot architect, you that shape for eternity, raise a stately memorial, make it regally gorgeous. Some imperial institute, rich in symbol and ornament, which may speak to the centuries, all the centuries after us, of this great ceremonial and the year of her jubilee. Fifty years of ever-broadening comments. Fifty years of ever-brightening science. Fifty years of ever-widening empire. You, the mighty, the fortunate. You, the Lord Territorial. You, the Lord Manufacturer. You, the hardy, laborious, patient children of Albion. You, Canadian, Indian, Australasian, African. All your hearts be in harmony. All your voices in unison. Singing, Hail to the glorious, golden year of her jubilee. Are there thunders moaning in the distance? Are there specters moving in the darkness? Trust the hand of light will lead her people. Till the thunders pass, the specters vanish and the light is victor, and the darkness dawns into the jubilee of ages. One of the great ironies of Queen Victoria's reign was her relationship with Ireland. At a time when most might expect her to be reviled by the Irish, especially during the Irish famine, the Queen crossed the Irish Sea in 1849 and, surprisingly, got a rousing welcome from the city of Cork. Indeed, she returned again in 1852 and even thought of building a holiday residence in Ireland before finally settling on the purchase of her Balmoral estate. Over the course of her life, she would visit Ireland four times, the last visit being in 1900, the year before she died. To commemorate that final trip, a certain Irish composer of popular entertainments, Percy French, wrote a somewhat satiric poem about her view of Dubliners. It was at a time in which all of Britain expected her to be mobbed by Irish protesters, if not assassinated when she first arrived. Indeed, French's gently comic characterization is still recited at many Irish pubs even today, not so much because it espouses a great love for the British, as it is the tip of the hat to what many people always thought or loved about Queen Victoria, her fundamentally no-nonsense, take-no-prisoners, down-to-earth, character. Here is Mr. French's famous fictional work, often called Says She, 
but officially known as the Queen's after-dinner speech in Ireland, 1900. Me loyal subjects, says she. Here's my best respect, says she. And I'm proud this day, says she, of the elegant way, says she, that you gave me the hand, says she, when I come to the land, says she. There was some people said, says she, they were greatly in dread, says she. I'd be murdered or shot, says she, as like as not, says she. But it's mighty clear, says she, that it's not over here, says she, that I have cause to fear, says she. It's them Belgians, says she, that's throwing the bombs, says she, and frightening the life, says she, out of the son and the wife, says she. But in these parts, says she, they have warm hearts, says she, and they all like me well, says she. Barring the honour Parnell, says she, I don't know, Earl, says she, what's come over the girl, says she, and that other one, says she, that Maud gone, says she, dressing in black, says she, to welcome me back, says she. Now, model right, says she, that I'd brought the blight, says she, or change the season, says she, for me own private reason, says she. And I think there's a slate off that Willie Yates, says she. He should be at home, says she, French polishing his poems, says she. Instead of writing letters, says she, about his betters, says she, and parading me crimes, says she, in the Irish times, says she. Ah, but what does it matter, says she, all this magpie chatter, says she. When I heard the welcoming roar, says she, coming up from the shore, says she, right over the foam, says she, sure it was like coming home, says she, and me heart fairly glowed, says she, along the rock road, says she, and into Butterstown, says she, and by Marion Round, says she, until I come to the ridge, says she, of the Leeson Street Bridge, says she, and was greeted in style by the beautiful smile of me Lord Mayor Pyle, says she. Fate, if I'd done right, says she, I'd have made him a knight, says she. And I need not repeat, says she, how they cheered in each street, says she, till I come to them lads, says she, don't you know, them undergrads, says she. Oh, and indeed and indeed, says she, I got many a god's speed, says she, but nothing to compare, says she, with what I've got here, says she. So pass the jug, says she, and I'll fill each mug, says she, and I'll give you a toast, says she, at which you may boast, says she. Now, I've a power of sons, says she, all sorts of ones, says she, some as quiet as cows, says she, some always in rows, says she, and the one that causes the most trouble, says she, should the mother love double, says she. So here's to the men, says she, that's gone into wind, says she, that's clear in the way, says she, to Pretoria today, says she, in the gap of danger, says she, there's a Connaught Ranger, says she, and a Fusilier not far, says she, from the heart of the war, says she. And they may talk a lot, says she. And them foreign baboons, says she, may draw their cartoons, said she. But there's one thing they'll never draw, says she, and that's the lion's claw, says she. For before our flag is furled, says she, we'll own the world, says she. Queen Victoria survived countless assassination attempts, all of them, not too surprisingly, not in Ireland, but in her home country of England. She also survived 23 different 19th century British parliaments run by everyone from Melbourne's Whig Party to Salisbury's Conservatives, and not a few stick-handled by Peel, Palmerston, Disraeli, and Gladstone. She also suffered her fair share of vicious lies, frivolous rumors, and bad press. But through it all, she gave rich meaning to that old British belief of keeping a stiff upper lip while simply muddling through. Eventually, though, the Victorian age came to an end 
on January 22, 1901, when Queen Victoria breathed her last. At the time, she happened to be on the Isle of Wight, where she died at the grand old age of 81. Her body was returned by ship for a state funeral, followed by a burial in early February at the Royal Mausoleum at Frogmore, Windsor. Here is an eyewitness account of that last journey as the ship carrying her remains crosses between Osborne and Portsmouth, England. I think you will like to hear of my going down to Southampton to see the passing of our dear Queen from Osborne to Portsmouth. I went on the Scot, where both houses were embarked. We steamed out and took up our position between the last British ship and the first foreign ships of war on the south side of the double line which the procession was to pass. The day was one of glorious sunshine, with the smoothest and bluest of seas. After a while, a black torpedo destroyer came dashing down the line, signaling that the Albert was leaving Osborne, and from every ship, both British and foreign, boomed out the minute guns for close on an hour before the procession reached us. The sun was now at 3 p.m., beginning to sink, and a wonderful golden pink appeared in the sky. And as the smoke slowly rose from the guns, it settled in one long festoon behind them, over Haslar, a purple festoon like the purple hangings ordered by the king. Then slowly down the long line of battleships came eight torpedo destroyers, dark gliding forms, and after them the white Albert, looking very small and frail, next to the towering battleships. We could see the motionless figures standing round the white pall, which, with the crown and orb and scepter, lay upon the coffin. Solemnly and slowly, it glided over the calm blue water, followed by the other three vessels, giving one a strange choke and a catch in one's heart as memory flew back to her triumphal passage down her fleet in the last Jubilee Review. As slowly and as silently as it came, the cortege passed away in the haze, with solemn booming of the guns continuing every minute till Portsmouth was reached. A wonderful scene and marvelously impressive, leaving behind it a memory of peace and beauty and sadness, which is impossible to forget. Of course we couldn't end today on such a somber note. No, Queen Victoria, the mother of Canadian Confederation, would expect more than just funereal sobriety from her Dominion of Canada on this, her special day of celebration. So we thought we'd cheer you up with a short story by Canada's foremost humorist who knew a thing or two about merry old England. Here's Stephen Leacock's Bugham Grange, a good old ghost story. The evening was already falling as the vehicle in which I was contained entered upon the long and gloomy avenue that leads to Bugham Grange. A resounding shriek echoed through the wood as I entered the avenue. I paid no attention to it at the moment, judging it to be merely one of those resounding shrieks one might expect to hear in such a place and at such a time. As my drive continued, however, I found myself wondering, in spite of myself, why such a shriek should have been uttered at the very moment of my approach. 
Now, I'm not by temperament in any degree a nervous man, and yet there was much in my surroundings to justify a certain feeling of apprehension. The Grange is situated in the loneliest part of England, the marsh country of the Fens, to which civilization has still hardly penetrated. The inhabitants, of whom there are only one and a half to the square mile, live here and there among the Fens and eke out a miserable existence by frog fishing and catching flies. They speak a dialect so broken as to be practically unintelligible, while the perpetual rain which falls upon them renders speech itself almost superfluous. Here and there, where the ground rises slightly above the level of the fens, there are dense woods tangled with parasitic creepers and filled with owls. Bats fly from wood to wood. The air on the lower ground is charged with the poisonous gases which exude from the marsh, while in the woods it's heavy with the dank odors of deadly nightshade and poison ivy. It had been raining in the afternoon, and as I drove up the avenue, the mournful dripping of the rain from the dark trees accentuated the cheerlessness of the gloom. The vehicle in which I rode was a fly on three wheels, the fourth having apparently been broken and taken off, causing the fly to sag on one side and drag its axle over the muddy ground, the fly thus moving only at a foot's pace in a way calculated to enhance the dreariness of the occasion. The driver on the box in front of me was so thickly muffled up as to be indistinguishable, while the horse which drew us was so thickly coated with mist as to be practically invisible. Seldom, may I say, have I had a drive of so mournful a character. The avenue presently opened out upon a lawn with overgrown shrubberies, and in the half-darkness I could see the outline of the grange itself, a rambling, dilapidated building. A dim light struggled through the casement of a window in a tower room. Save for the melancholy cry of a row of owls sitting on the roof, and the croaking of frogs in the moat which ran around the grounds, the place was soundless. My driver halted his horse at the hither side of the moat. I tried in vain to urge him by signs to go further. I could see by the fellow's face that he was in a paroxysm of fear, and indeed nothing but the extra sixpence which I had added to his fare would have made him undertake the drive up the avenue. I had no sooner alighted than he wheeled his cab about and made off. Laughing heartily at the fellow's trepidation, I have a way of laughing heartily in the dark, I made my way to the door and pulled the bell handle. I could hear the muffled reverberations of the bell far within the building. Then all was silent. I bent my ear to listen, but could hear nothing except perhaps the sound of a low moaning as of a person in pain or in great mental distress. Convinced, however, from what my friend Sir Jeremy Buggam had told me, that the grange was not empty, I raised the ponderous knocker and beat with it loudly against the door. But perhaps at this point I may do well to explain to my listeners, before they're too frightened to listen to me, how I came to be beating on the door of Buggam Grange at nightfall on a gloomy November evening. A year before, I'd been sitting with Sir Jeremy Buggam, the present baronet, on the veranda of his ranch in California. So you don't believe in the supernatural, he was saying. Not in the slightest, I answered, lighting a cigar as I spoke. When I want to speak very positively, I generally light a cigar as I speak. Well, at any rate, Digby, said Sir Jeremy, Buggam Grange is haunted. If you want to be assured of it, go down there any time and spend the night and you'll see for yourself. 
My dear fellow, I replied, nothing will give me greater pleasure. I shall be back in England in six weeks, and I shall be delighted to put your ideas to the test. Now tell me, I added somewhat cynically, is there any particular season or day when your grange is supposed to be specially terrible? Sir Jeremy looked at me strangely. Why do you ask that, he said. Have you heard the story of the grange? Never heard of the place in my life, I answered cheerily. Till you mentioned it tonight, my dear fellow, I hadn't the remotest idea that you still owned property in England. Ah, uh, the Grange is shut up, and has been for twenty years. But I keep a man there, horrid. He was butler in my father's time and before. If you care to go, I'll write him that you're coming. And since you're taking your own fate in your hands, the 15th of November is the day. At that moment, Lady Buggam and Clara and the other girls came trooping out on the veranda, and the whole thing passed clean out of my mind. Nor did I think of it again until I was back in London. Then, by one of those strange coincidences, or premonitions, call it what you will, it suddenly occurred to me one morning that it was the 15th of November. Whether Sir Jeremy had written to Horrid or not, I did not know. But nonetheless, nightfall found me, as I have described, knocking at the door of Buggam Grange. The sound of the knocker had scarcely ceased to echo when I heard the shuffling of feet within, and the sound of chains and bolts being withdrawn. The door opened. A man stood before me, holding a lighted candle which he shaded with his hand. His faded black clothes, once apparently a butler's dress, his white hair and advanced age, left me in no doubt that he was horrid of whom Sir Jeremy had spoken. Without a word, he motioned me to come in, and, still without speech, he helped me to remove my wet outer garments, and then beckoned me into a great room, evidently the dining room of the Grange. Now, I'm not in any degree a nervous man by temperament, as I think I remarked before, and yet there was something in the vastness of this wainscoted room, lighted only by a single candle, and in the silence of the empty house, and still more in the appearance of my speechless attendant, which gave me a feeling of distinct uneasiness. As Horrid moved to and fro, I took occasion to scrutinize his face more narrowly. I have seldom seen features more calculated to inspire a nervous dread. The pallor of his face and the whiteness of his hair, the man was at least seventy, and still more the peculiar furtiveness of his eyes seemed to mark him as one who lived under a great terror. He moved with a noiseless step, and at times he turned his head to glance in the dark corners of the room. So Jeremy told me, I said, speaking as loudly and as heartily as I could, that he would apprise you of my coming. I was looking into his face as I spoke. In answer, Horrid laid his finger across his lips, and I knew that he was deaf and dumb. I'm not nervous, I think I said that, but the realization that my sole companion in this empty house was a deaf mute struck a cold chill to my heart. Horrid laid in front of me a cold meat pie, a cold goose, a cheese, and a tall flagon of cider. But my appetite was gone. I ate the goose, but found that after I had finished the pie, I had but little zest for the cheese, which I finished without enjoyment. The cider had a sour taste, and after having permitted Horrid to refill the flagon twice, I found that it induced a sense of melancholy and decided to drink no more. My meal finished, the butler picked up the candle and beckoned me to follow him. 
We pass through the empty corridors of the house, a long line of pictured bugums looking upon us as we passed. Their portraits in the flickering light of the taper, assuming a strange and lifelike appearance, as if leaning forward from their frames to gaze upon the intruder. Horrid led me upstairs, and I realized that he was taking me to the tower in the east wing in which I had observed a light. The rooms to which the butler conducted me consisted of a sitting room with an adjoining bedroom, both of them fitted with antique wainscoting, against which a faded tapestry fluttered. There was a candle burning on the table in the sitting room, but its insufficient light only rendered the surroundings the more dismal. Horrid bent down in front of the fireplace and endeavored to light a fire there, but the wood was evidently damp, and the fire flickered feebly on the hearth. The butler left me, and in the stillness of the house I could hear his shuffling step echo down the corridor. It may have been fancy, but it seemed to me that his departure was the signal for a low moan that came from somewhere behind the wainscot. There was a narrow cupboard door at one side of the room, and for the moment I wondered whether the moaning came from within. I'm not as a rule lacking in courage, I'm sure my listener will be decent enough to believe this, yet I found myself entirely unwilling to open the cupboard door and look within. In place of doing so, I seated myself in a great chair in front of the feeble fire. I must have been seated there for some time when I happened to lift my eyes to the mantle above and saw, standing upon it, a letter addressed to myself. I knew the handwriting at once to be that of Sir Jeremy Buggam. I opened it, and spreading it out within reach of the feeble candlelight, I read as follows. My dear Digby, in our talk that you will remember, I had no time to finish telling you about the mystery of Buggam Grange. I take for granted, however, that you will go there, and that Horrid will put you in the tower rooms, which are the only ones that make any pretense of being habitable. I have, therefore, sent him this letter to deliver at the Grange itself. The story is this. On the night of the 15th of November, 50 years ago, my grandfather was murdered in the room in which you are sitting by his cousin, Sir Duggam Buggam. He was stabbed from behind while seated at the little table at which you are probably reading this letter. The two had been playing cards at the table, and my grandfather's body was found lying in a litter of cards and gold sovereigns on the floor. Sir Duggam Buggam, insensible from drink, lay beside him, the fatal knife at his hand, his fingers smeared with blood. My grandfather, though of the younger branch, possessed a part of the estates which were to revert to Sir Duggam on his death. Sir Duggam Buggam was tried at the Assizes and was hanged. On the day of his execution, he was permitted by the authorities, out of respect for his rank, to wear a mask to the scaffold. The clothes in which he was executed are hanging at full length in the little cupboard to your right, and the mask is above them. It is said that on every 15th of November at midnight, the cupboard door opens and Sir Duggam Buggam walks out into the room. It has been found impossible to get servants to remain at the Grange, and the place, except for the presence of Horrid, has been unoccupied for a generation. At the time of the murder, Horrid was a young man of twenty-two, newly entered into the service of the family. It was he who entered the room and discovered the crime. On the day of the execution, he was stricken with paralysis and has never spoken since. From that time to this, he has never consented to leave the Grange.
where he lives in isolation. Wishing you a pleasant night after your tiring journey, I remain very faithfully Jeremy Bugham. I leave my reader to imagine my state of mind when I completed the perusal of the letter. I have as little belief in the supernatural as anyone, yet I must confess that there was something in the surroundings in which I now found myself which rendered me at least uncomfortable. My listener may smile, if you will, but I assure him that it was with a very distinct feeling of uneasiness that I at length managed to rise to my feet, and, grasping my candle in my hand, to move backward into the bedroom. As I backed into it, something so like a moan seemed to proceed from the closed cupboard that I accelerated my backward movement to a considerable degree. I hastily blew out the candle, threw myself upon the bed, and drew the bedclothes over my head, keeping, however, one eye and one ear still out and available. How long I lay thus listening to every sound, I cannot tell. The stillness had become absolute. From time to time, I could dimly hear the distant cry of an owl, and once, far away in the building below, a sound as someone dragging a chain along a floor. More than once, I was certain that I heard the sound of moaning behind the wainscot. Meantime, I realized that the hour must now be drawing close upon the fatal moment of midnight. My watch I could not see in the darkness, but by reckoning the time that must have elapsed, I knew that midnight could not be far away. Then presently my ear, alert to every sound, could just distinguish far away across the fens the striking of a church bell, and the clock tower of Bugham Village Church, no doubt, tolling the hour of twelve. On the last stroke of twelve, the cupboard door in the next room opened. There's no need to ask me how I knew it. I couldn't, of course, see it, but I could hear, or sense, in some way, the sound of it. I could feel my hair, all of it, rising upon my head. I was aware that there was a presence in the adjoining room. I will not say a person, a living soul, but a presence. Anyone who has been in the next room to a presence will know just how I felt. I could hear a sound as of someone groping on the floor and the faint rattle as of coins. My hair was now perpendicular. My listener can believe it or not, but it was. Then, at this very moment, from somewhere below in the building, there came the sound of a prolonged and piercing cry, a cry as of a soul passing in agony. My listener may censure me or not, but right at this moment, I decided to beat it. Whether I should have remained to see what was happening is a question that I will not discuss. My one idea was to get out, and to get out quickly. The window of the tower room was some twenty-five feet above the ground. I sprang out to the casement in one leap and landed on the grass below. I jumped over the shrubbery in one bound and cleared the moat in one jump. I went down the avenue in about six strides and ran five miles along the road through the fence in three minutes. This, at least, is an accurate transcription of my sensations. It may have taken longer. I never stopped till I found myself on the threshold of the Bugham Arms in Little Bugham, beating on the door for the landlord. I returned to Bugham Grange on the next day in the bright sunlight of a frosty November morning in a seven-cylinder motor car with six local constables and a physician. It makes all the difference. We carried revolvers, spades, pickaxes, shotguns, and a Ouija board. What we found cleared up forever the mystery of the Grange. We discovered Horrid, the butler, lying on the dining room floor quite dead. The physician said that he had died from heart failure. There was evidence from the marks of his shoes in the dust that he had come in the night to the tower room. 
On the table he had placed a paper which contained a full confession of his having murdered Jeremy Buggam fifty years before. The circumstances of the murder had rendered it easy for him to fasten the crime upon Sir Duggam, already insensible from drink. A few minutes with the Ouija board enabled us to get a full corroboration from Sir Duggam. He promised, moreover, now that his name was cleared, to go away from the premises forever. My friend, the present Sir Jeremy, has rehabilitated Buggam Grange. The place is rebuilt, the moat is drained, the whole house is lit with electricity, there are beautiful motor drives in all directions in the woods, he has had the bats shot and the owls stuffed. His daughter, Clara Buggam, became my wife. She's looking over my shoulder as I write. What more do you want? Time now to get back to fixing up those gardens, planting some flowers, putting in the dock, polishing that old fly fishing rod, or maybe taking a break on the back deck and dreaming of splitting a 2-4 on May 2-4 next year with all those neighbors who have been finally vaccinated against COVID-19. We hope you've enjoyed today's show and look forward to having you join us again for our next summer special over the long weekend in July. Despite COVID-19, we are planning on having a rip-roaring time here on what passes for another Sunday afternoon, listening to the 21st century's answer to those grand old-time radio shows from the Dirty 30s. Today's show was performed by Leslie Betts, Jeff Bowman, Vicki Sabalski-Blank, Joanne Olson, Carol and Brian Peterson, Lynn Stewart, and Mark Wormkey. We'd like to thank our special guest, Joanne Olson, president of the Station Keepers, and Kim Love, the mayor of the Madawaska Valley Township, for making this time to join us today. I'm Kristen Marchand, and along with our producer, Barry Conway, we'd like to wish you all a very special Victoria Day. Good day, and God bless.